Welcome to the Anime Podcast. This week we find our little talk about more in the Arges River, deep in the heart of Transylvania, actually just below the old Mad the Impaler Castle, also known as Dracula's Castle. Uh, this week we're on the Stone Mount for Jeffrey Epstein. Uh, we're going on a bit of a hunch here, but he may have fled Sea of Cortez for last week and made his way to Transylvania, because where else would he go? And uh, we believe he may have uh, manifested as a vampire. Uh, I don't know why we think that, but we do. Um, some of us may be just getting a bit stir-mad, stir-crazy from um, being in the boat for so long. So uh, we'll catch up with uh, Vampire Epstein later on in the podcast. But uh, this week we're going to be discussing the upcoming, well, potentially upcoming coalition of Fianna Fáil, Fine Gael and the Green Party as well as uh, in the second half we'll be discussing um, philanthropy, if that's what you want to call it, amongst billionaires. Um, but uh, in the meantime, wish us luck in hunting down and uh, killing, hopefully, at last, uh, vampire Jeffrey Epstein. Hello, so um, this week we are going to be talking about the coalition of the Irish government. Um, being a Scot, I don't really know how to pronounce the political party's name, obviously. Um, so I've obviously boned up and the main players in the coalition are um, the Fianna Fail, Fianna Fail, um, the Fianna Fail. Nah, nah, listen, listen, I've boned up on this. Um, the Green <laughs> Party and, of course, the notorious um, Sinn Féin. Um, we've got quite a number of questions. So, like, the first one I thought we could kick off with was the most obvious one, which is where do things currently stand on government formation? Uh, does Fine Gael really want to ally with Fianna Fáil? And now that they're getting good press from the response from the pandemic, who wants to start? I'm going to guess, Alex, you want to start. Seems only fair. Um, uh, basically, where it stands now is that Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil have agreed to go into a coalition. But because of the results of the election, being that no one, even no two parties, have enough to form a government, even if Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil were able to hoodwink some independents, because they are the uh, great unknown in all of this, they still wouldn't have enough. So they need... Basically, Fianna Fáil, Fine Gael, some independents, and this other party. Now, that can be the Green Party, seems the most obvious. It could also be the Social Democratic Party. Uh, it could also be, I don't know, maybe yeah. someone else, but it's certainly unlikely to be Sinn Féin. Sinn Féin, as it stands now, are persona non grata. Uh, for being in any government south of uh, Armagh. So that's kind of where it sits at the moment. The A week ago, the Green Party sent a letter to the Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil, and they said they will only discuss government formation if 17 uh, terms or articles were, were agreed to, uh, the, mo the most pressing being the reduction uh, by 7% of carbon year on year. So that's not over the term of a government. That's year after year has to be 7% carbon reduction, as well as universal basic income, uh, huge investment in public uh, transport, uh, movement towards uh, bike paths everywhere. Basically, that was their letter. Paths everywhere. Yeah, pretty much. Finnegan and Finnefall basically said no. 
the Green Party has said, uh-oh, and are in the mo- at the moment they're in a huge, basically internal row uh, between the membership um, and the members of the parliamentary party. This is something anyone who's used to the Labour Party politics must be fairly familiar with. And that's honestly where it currently sits. Uh, we don't know if the Green Party will go in or not. Uh, I mean, statistically speaking, it's likely they will. But as yeah. it is right now on the second uh, of May, we don't know. Cool, James. What would you like to say about that? Yeah. So I think um, that the Green Party are basically spiffing of the highest order. Uh, I think these those seventeen uh, points were set. I mean, they're not unsensible within themselves, but obviously there's no neoliberal government that's going to um, agree to those terms. Uh, And they basically set them so high that they could at least, on the outset, seem to be like they were trying to do something. Uh, But it's like the idea is like, you know, when when you're bargaining, you start off really high and then you go really low. Uh, so I'm not convinced by the Green Party whatsoever because you just know that they'll end up doing like a 10p tax on plastic bags and that's <laughs> enough for them. They'll do a Lib Dems. Yeah, exactly. I mean, they're effectively... They'll kill squirrels. The, the, Green, <laughs> the Green Party in, in Ireland are nothing more than three kids on top of each other in a trench coat. <laughs> that's how convincing they are. Um, so I don't... I think that they will go in, and I think they'll go in with something like their their bottom lines just being so far away from where they've set it now. Okay, so I've got a couple of questions on that. So, firstly, I suppose um, my first question is going to be, if they are three kids piled on top of each other in a trench coat, do they have a girlfriend, and is that a pink cat? <laughs> um, last one for the BoJack Horseman fans. Princess Carolyn? Yeah, Princess Carolyn, she's the best. Philip Adolf's um, man. Yeah, she admitted a business. Yeah. So um, second question was, the Green Party in Ireland, for like, ignorant people like me, um, are they a wee bit like the Green Party in the UK where they're just a bunch of like 50-year-olds who shop in Waitrose and have an allotment, or are they actually like a radical green left-wing movement? James, do you want to answer that? Yeah, so... They're they're slightly younger in terms of their makeup, but they are they're effectively the Irish version of the Lib Dems. Um, they did quite well considering at some local elections last year, um, and they when it for, when it came to the first votes that they had to do, they capitulated right away. It, they. Um, I can't remember what it was called, but it was like... Some oh, Devaney Gardens. Devaney yeah. Gardens. Exactly. And Hazel Chu, who, I don't know how old, must be like early 30s or something like that, um, who built like quite a lot of goodwill, shattered it all within one vote. Um, and then she ran onto like the the Facebook Simpsons meme page <sighs> to to try and defend herself, saying like, hey, you know, but I, I'm like one of you, I do all these Simpsons memes. And they were like, yeah, but... It, like <laughs> what we want is actual materialistic change rather than just someone that says they're going to to do it and then not do it when it's actually time to step up to the plate. Um, so they're 
their makeup is definitely younger, but they don't have some heavy hitters like say the Green Party would, especially Scotland. Scotland's got Andy Wyman, who is one of the best politicians in the entire uh, UK in terms of good politics. Um, so they don't have anyone as as left as him in the party. Alex? Um, so it should be said, um, the, a bit of background is important. So my the very first election um, I voted in was in uh, 1990, not that old, uh, 2007. And in 2007 election, a guy called Trevor Sargent, who was, uh, was the leader of the Green Party. And at the time, the Green Party was considered very much, um, you know, Fine Gael on bikes, you know, and that would be not even... Not even, you know, very carbon-heavy bikes at that too. Um, but they, they went in, they said, we will not go into government. We promise we will not go into government with Fianna Fáil. That's the one thing we will not do. So people, a lot of people voted for them. Again, the usual kind of suburban, you know, yummy mummy crowd, you know, hip dad, as uh, James used to have a character who's called hip dad, I think something along those lines, or handsome trendy dad. dad. Trendy dad. So trendy dads and yummy mummies voted for them. And then the moment they did fairly well for the for, for them, I think they got like 10 or 11 seats. Um, they kicked off, they, kicked, uh, they kind of fired the leader of the party who'd made this promise, brought in some other guy, and then immediately went into government with Vinifal. And, and if you can do the math, that was 2007. Next year, you have the financial collapse, uh, austerity. By 2011, when there was the next election, they lost all their seats, and they became an absolute joke. Uh, people, uh, uh, my partner worked uh, basically with them at the time. It was doing a job bridge with them and said that they were most dysfunctional, most disinterested in green values. They're basically people, who, at the time anyway, who were, you know, had their rural homes in Galway, who had basically solar uh, panels up and expected everyone to live similar lives. And, and it's ridiculous, you know. So that's what they, the way they were and that's what they did. Now, Last year, as James said, they did okay, but that's because a lot of the people uh, have had forgotten what they'd done and forgotten really who they were. And I think at the moment, if there is a problem with the Greens, is that there is a younger base. Saoirse McHugh is good. She's a pretty much an anarchist. She's said she's an anarchist. Um, she would be. She said if she, uh, she's just an anarchist who is apparently in running for elections. But she said if they go into government with either Fine Gael or Fianna Fáil, she'll walk away. Now, if she does. That's great. That's a big thing there. Um, but I do think they have a huge issue, which is if if they don't get that, I think they're going to lose an awful lot of the people who we can call them naive or we can call them whatever. But they they joined the party during the recession times and maybe they don't see themselves as being the same as the leadership. And, and now they're going to find that out for certain that they are, in fact, in the wrong political party. Mm. Um, so, like, Saoirse McHugh, you mentioned her before, and I think James had mentioned as well that a lot of the um, 17 demands that we've kind of given the political parties are, uh, I suppose, like, unpalatable to any neoliberal party. Um, why is that? What What are their demands? Like, why are their demands so unpalatable? What are they? Because some yeah. of them require actual, like, investment in society. Uh, so, like universal basic income um, uh, is is going to be expensive to do, and it's um, it would require a neoliberal government to set up a huge fund that anyone can 
benefit from, and that's that's completely against their their raison d'etre, effectively. Sure. So, like, um, obviously, like they're they want to like set up a UBI. I'm not sure how on earth they go about paying for this since they don't have a central bank where they can print off loads of money. And it's not obvious to me where Ireland gets its like own income from since they refuse to charge tech companies. Um, Alex, you were going to say something. Sorry. There's a few things there. Not that not that I feel the need to defend the Irish government uh, because ta- they but they do pay like one percent tax. It's not. I, I've, I'm not saying just to be really really accurate here. It's not nothing. One percent. Not quite nothing though. <laughs> okay, okay. No, the point I was trying to make there was um, so the demands they made, I think, were because the membership don't want to go in and the leadership maybe thought this is an opening gambit. Is it doable and why wouldn't they do it? The biggest reason it's not doable for the other two parties is very, very simple. Um, I, I'm looking out the window and I can just about see one in the, fi- in the field next door to me. What do you think it is? Farmer. Well, it's a farmer, a farmer and a cow, and you can imagine what they're doing to each other. Um, but the cow, the agribusiness is the big business outside the cities, and Fine Gael and Fine Fáil have huge swathes of their electorate there. They're not going to do anything to damage that. Even if it's crying out to be done, they're not going to do it. And, and it's as simple as that. So, I mean, to have a reduction of 7% carbon year on year the easiest way to do it would be to reduce the amount of cows. Honestly, that would be the easiest way of doing it. Yeah. But it's but they're not going to do that. Now, for UBI, how would you deal with that? You obviously have to raise taxes on all sorts of different things. You'd have to uh, reduce the amount of cars on the road. But as we know now, uh, because world, the amount of carbon basically being produced at the moment has only reduced by just over 5%. So with all those people stuck indoors, not going anywhere, all those planes ground. Only 5% less carbon has been produced. Only 5 So that's not going to cut it. It'll have to do the enormous... Uh, we'd have to get off any type of coal and gas. Again, those things are not palatable to the, the base of the Fine Gael and Fine Fall. And so I don't see really any of those 17 things being doable in a world where you have to keep things on the status quo. It's doable. I mean, obviously it's doable. But it takes people being committed to do it and i just don't see any of the electorate uh, of Fine Gael and for the fall being willing to do anything really um Saoirse McHugh obviously one of the things she is platforming on is that the green party would be good for farmers um maybe that's her like just trying to like persuade a large and powerful group of people in ireland to vote green um but yeah well, suppose like if they don't want to enter a coalition and they're trying to make it as unpalatable as possible to go into coalition, then given 17 like impossible demands make sense. Alex? Yeah, I mean, she's not wrong to say that the Green Party would be, well, maybe not good, but they wouldn't be bad for the farmers either. There's a lot of money to be made farming trees now. Unfortunately, a lot of the trees in their farms are pines because they can be grown in pretty much anywhere and they can grow them, grow them really close together. But nonetheless, trees is big money now, and the EU pay quite good money for that. You know, they're far, it's a farming subsidy. So they're not, they're not wrong. Their problem with it is that they don't want their lives to change at all, uh, at all, at all. They've, you know, their, their great great granddad won the land back from the evil fucking tans, and they're going to, you know, be dead in a ditch before they had some European come in and tell them to grow trees. It's it's reactionary and it's backward, but they really do think like that. 
Like, I mean, the the main kind of head culture in Ireland, TD, is a member of his brothers, um, Michael and Danny Healy Ray. And they said they fucked the environment when they got elected. So that's the attitude, you know? Um, it's insane. It makes no sense. They'd be better off financially, but they don't want to do it. Right. So it seems like a bit of a politics of spite going on um, as well. Like, a kind of like self-effacing spite is really kind of strange. Um, okay, so what do you think the... Obviously, like, James, you're pretty cynical and, like, pretty... Um, <laughs> pes- sorry, cynical. You're pretty pessimistic <laughs> about... What you just said is a psyop. What you just said is a psyop. <laughs> it's all psyops. It's all psyops. It's psyops um, the way down. <laughs> yeah. Did you hear? Apparently, um, as I said, um, the SNP, the Cybernats, during the Scottish um, independence referendum, kept on saying that everyone in the question time audience was an MI5 plant. Yeah, and then we were right. The whole <laughs> and then it turned out they were. <laughs> yeah. Really? Is that true? Yeah. That's yeah. insane. Absolutely ridiculous. Again, uh, it, it blew up last week again on Twitter. Like it turned out that this this initially just made them sound like you know they were totally unhinged, um, but nope, it turned out it's actually true. Uh, so yeah, grim times. Um, so what do we think going forward? The future will be for the Irish Parliament. Do we think that a coalition will be done? What do you think the Greens will be prepared to scrap if anything, and if they're not? Do we just go back to the polls? Well, Literally. Say, will I speak first? Yeah. Go for it. Um, what do we think will happen? Um, I think if I am, um, I think Leo Varadkar and Fine Gael think or are delusional enough to think that if once this is over, or at least enough of this is over, that if they go back to the polls, they will get a much better result and they will be able to be, they'll be back in the driving seat. I think they think that. I think they think they can play Fianna Fáil for fools because the leader of Fianna Fáil only wants one thing, and that's to be Taoiseach. And he's and no doubt they've already promised him if they go into coalition, he'll have that. So I think he'll that Fine Gael is playing a pretty good game, at least in regards fucking over Fianna Fáil, which is that they're going to take a lot of their voters when when there's an election after this. I don't think there'll be a coalition. Um, so you think there'll be another election? Oh, God, yeah. I think it'll be another election because I don't think any of the three parties, certainly Sinn Féin, is only only to gain from this. I mean, Sinn Féin um, will be able to say as much as they like in the six weeks of the election about how what Fine Gael didn't do, the testing that wasn't done, the, the care homes that weren't protected. I mean, we could go on and on. Why is Ireland today the sixth worst, worst in terms of mortality in Ireland, in, in Europe, pardon me, uh, per head of population. Why are we ninth or eleventh in the world um, per head of population? It, it it there's something seriously went wrong, you know. Uh, so I think that's easy. That's an easy case to make. So I I think Sinn Fein will want another election. Fine Gael will want another election. The only party I think that doesn't want one is Fianna Fáil, and I think they're being played for fools, uh, which they should be because they are fools. Um, the Greens, if they're smart. Uh, will stay out, but I think there's so so many of them are so hungry for power uh, that they might go in. So I don't know. I'm I'm pretty evenly split, kind of fifty fifty on whether there will be uh, um, a coalition in the short term. I definitely think there's going to be an election once this is over. I think that's whenever that is. I think there will be an election, 
And I think Fine Gael will do better. Fianna Fáil will lose a lot of seats. Sinn Féin will do way better. Um, but that's all to come in the future. But yeah, I, t- I basically think there'll be another election, maybe a short-term coalition. So, yeah. like, obviously Sinn Féin were the largest party standing at the end of the last election <clears throat> in terms of, like, seats won. And the reason they didn't win outright probably is because they didn't field enough candidates. Do you think they'll win this time if they put more candidates out? Uh, no. No? I think... Um, they don't. There's. They don't have the talent there, like to field good enough candidates at the moment. So, they'll. If there is another election, say in like five or six months, they will try and put people out there. But not a lot of them are not going to be tested. A lot of them are not going to be um, had their their histories checked well enough. Uh, and it's going to be a really dirty election because of the results that happened at the last one. So, you know, the the press and people will just be looking for any purchase that they can to to wreck these people's um, uh, chances. And unfortunately, some of it will be justified as well. Yeah. There will be fu- the, like fucking dodgy guys in there um, and the candidates that they, they put out because that's the nature of people that want to be politicians. They, you know, they're usually touched in the head in one way or another. Um, I think that Fine Gael have actually largely, you know, despite the failures, built quite a lot of goodwill um, from this crisis. Uh, and so it would be within their interest to get an election in sooner rather than later because they'll do their classic and they'll, they'll piss all their goodwill away. Um, so it's better for them if they if they call an election early and and get into it. Right, Alex. Um, it should be said just as a point of bringing up the history of this that uh, the Brexit negotiations obviously are still ongoing, but in terms of the stage one, the issue in Ireland that was mostly put to bed in late December. I, I could be wrong about this, but I think it was late December of last year. People can correct me on that. Now, the election in Ireland happened in, was it early, mid-February, thereabouts? Yeah, it must be. Um, So that gave them a total of a month to ride high on basically fucking over the Brits. You know, that was the idea of it. You know, we we got the Brits over a barrel. And you can figure out the rest. That didn't win them for it. So when the election strange, happened, because that was exactly the Conservative Party's um, campaign as well in December. Didn't work, it didn't work here, uh, and I really do think that if Finnegale thinks that this is going to make up for what they were in that they were in power for eleven years, I don't think it's going to be. I don't think it's going to work that way. I think the moment there is an election, uh, I think they will maybe do. I do think Finnegale will do slightly better. I think they'll take seats from Finnegale. I think the base of Finnefall, um, a part of the base of Finnefall, the older Southern Republicans, because again, it's hard maybe for you guys. Well, James has been here a long while now; he probably gets it. There's a kind of a Southern Irish nationalism, and then there's obviously a Northern Irish nationalism. And the Southern one is built around um, the War of Independence, about the IRA in, in the twenties and thirties, because that's what Finnefall was. It was the IRA political and military in the 1920s and 30s. Now, that's what they think of. And they weren't too happy with what happened in Northern Ireland, but they still think somewhat like Republicans and nationalists. And they do not have any truck with going in with Fine Gael. And I think what 
that's going to happen is a chunk of them to win back their party are going to vote for Sinn Féin quietly. It's not going to be a very public thing. They're going to do it quietly to basically get rid of the leadership of the party that's there now. They want them gone. They think they're not proper nationalists and they will be gone. And what you might see is a rebirth of a kind of a Southern republicanism, which is both Sinn Féin and Fianna Fáil, if that happens. Uh, but I, I think Fianna Fáil has played a terrible game. They've only, only, they're only going to be you know, de- decimated the next time there's an election. And I do, but and I would disagree with James. I think they do have a lot of talent, Sinn Fein. They tend to build them up from the council level, from everything really. And yeah, there's a fair few of them might be caught, you know, uh, uh, on Instagram singing "Can I Shoot Like a Tans," or might be saying, you know, being caught, like, being caught saying, or caught saying up the ra. But you know, that's not going to hurt them too much, to be honest with you. Um, it's been 22 years since the Good Friday Agreement. It just doesn't work in the same way the the, the old ra beating. So I think I think there's a pretty good chance that next election the two biggest parties will be Sinn Fein uh, and Fregel. And I think Finnafall might even go down like significantly, might be very badly damaged by what they've done. Um, and after that, who knows? I think we're still going to be stuck in a in a uh, with, with the lack of a government. Really, there's no and no party's going to have enough to to, to put a coalition together easily. So we're, unless something dramatic changes between now and then. I think that's where we're going to end up. Yeah, grim. Um, something I think Varadkar did that probably, I can't work out if it was cynically motivated or not, but he um, started working as a doctor again on Fridays. Is that right? Like he went back into practice? <laughs> no, on, 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 on the telephone. He was telephone doctoring. Oh, right. Oh, Jesus. I, I imagined him with his like, sleeves rolled up in an A&E ward and walking nope. on no. old people. Oh. <laughs> Mind you, like it's still yeah, better than Boris Johnson <laughs> had um, That's all he did, really. Yeah, I mean, to be, to be honest, I'd rather that he wouldn't fucking do that because he is meant to be leading a country. <laughs> it should be, like it's a big enough job being the fucking like T-shirt. He should be moonlighting as a doctor for a like PR bump. It does sound a bit. It does sound a bit like. A, it does sound a bit like the uh, the uh, script from a Richard Curtis movie. It's like oh, he's the Christ. prime minister, but he's also a doctor on the side. Oh, man, <laughs> it's so grim. Yep, there you go. So, not looking but, too great for over Acker, or indeed anyone. I feel as a side note, though, it does show you the difference between um, British and Irish politics, where. To get somewhere in Irish politics, you largely had to have done something beforehand to be a farmer, to you know, to get in, or to be some sort of businessman or doctor or a lawyer, something that gives you some social standing to to campaign on. Where in the UK, the right. <laughs> uh, most people, yeah, most people are just um, born into it, you know. Like Johnson was basically breeded into power rather than it being something that um, he wants. He wants to do it because he's been told that's what he should be doing. But obviously, like as soon as he got into office, he's been doing anything that he can to fucking avoid doing any work. I've done as much work in Number Ten as Boris Johnson has. <laughs> You probably, um, he, you, I was going to make a terrible joke about you probably being masturbated less than he has, and he's got COVID, but anyway. Um, <laughs> but that doesn't work as a joke. Um, 
he's bred into power and breeding while in power. That's that works. Yeah. <laughs> um, but no, I mean, the political system in Ireland is obviously every country has its differences. But certainly, I think if you look at the way the Irish political system, it kind of matches the professional classes. So if you want to, I think you can see, you know, certainly some of the bigger farmers are part of the professional class, doctors, lawyers, businessmen. Um, it's classic, like, bourgeois, uh, bourgeoisie. Yeah. Um, whereas in England, it's the aristocracy. Uh, and it's almost like an inbuilt uh, forelock hugging. In Ireland, we tug our forelock to the doctor and to the lawyer. It used to be the priest until, well, we all know what happened with that. Um, but but in, 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 I think in England, it's it's the aristocracy. And and, and say what you will about that. I mean, we're, uh, it's amazing that England still does that. It still behaves that way, but it does. Um, how, in terms of what you can do, um, in terms of why that is, we, we did this in a previous podcast about the fact that um, it's nothing to innately good about Ireland. It's just the, the Tans killed all our aristocrats and drove them out of the country because they were Catholic. That's about it. It's no, no more complicated than that. Um, and the people who took over the colony after the Brits left were the professional middle class. That was it. That's It's pretty clear why Ireland is the way it is. Um, in terms of what, yeah. uh, what does the left do with all of this? I think in the same way that in Britain, though, maybe we need to do it to a slightly lesser degree because we have uh, proportional representation here, the left has to stop looking at parliament. It's, it's, it is a waste of time. It is a, it's a waste of our time. It's a waste of, of, of anyone going down that road. You're just going to end up, at the best, you might be able to win a chunk uh, using social democratic policies. But you're inevitably going to have to go up against this brick wall of the media of, of all these things that are going to come at you and it's just not a good way to present the ideas I don't think it is I think you have to these are kind of slow burn ideas not that we have a lot of time to actually be as friendly as you but we're certainly not going to get those ideas across by running for elections I, I think you again I, I I wouldn't I'm not the type of person who doesn't vote if I think there's an option there to vote for that makes the 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 world slightly less horrible, I'll vote for it. But if I was looking at Britain right now and there was a vote right now between Keir Starmer and Boris Johnson, I wouldn't vote. Uh, I would would not see the point. It'd yeah, same. Um, same. Yeah, like, yeah. Yeah. Parliamentary, parliamentary politics is meant to be part of a larger structure for left politics. It's not meant to be the only thing. And that's where the left has really got sidetracked in the past 20 years I would say it's, it's got sidetracked in particular since Corbyn and, and Bernie Sanders uh, came along and especially right, but yeah like it it was something that was already on its way and mm. now that they've both been rat fucked out of the, the picture uh, it is really time to start going back onto the streets rather than you know trying to get into Whitehall yeah, I mean, I think I agree with that. It's really, I think, upsetting that we have completely lost any hope at all for like a worldwide um, socialist movement, like you know, like this international um, communist or international socialist or international anarchist um, brotherhood or whatever that we all wanted, and we are now so happy with what is essentially concessionary politics. Um, and we're just like, well, we're not going to like, we're never going to have the means of production, but we'd be, it'd be really great if you could increase welfare payments by 15 pence a week. That'd be great. Thanks. Or we're never going to have like, you know, um, a decent 
press and media service. But we'd really like it if you could have if you could have free broadband, please. That'd be amazing. Um, and we've just there's just such a lack of ambition, and I think it's because we've been beaten down for so long, and it's not obvious how we're going to overcome that. Um, I'm just like looking at Saoirse McHugh's website just now, and she describes herself as a democratic socialist. Um, which is interesting. Um, I don't know what she means by that. We spoke about how porous this term was last time. Um, but, you know, like, why is she bothering with the Irish Parliament if it's a total waste of time? Like, is she misguided? Is she naive? Is she just really trying to, like, provide an alternative? What's she doing? Um, I mean, you'd have to, obviously, you'd have to ask her exactly what she thinks she's doing. Um, I mean, I saw her... <laughs> What you know, the fuck did you think you're doing? How dare you, Saoirse McHugh? <laughs> uh, I mean, I think she, I mean, I, I've heard her say multiple times she's, she felt she was an anarchist, but that she was working uh, for what she thought was possible. And she's, if she's, if she's of the belief, like you basically just expressed it there, concessionary politics is the only way to go. And if she believes that, that's what she believes. Uh, but she said repeatedly she's a socialist who believes in decentralizing power. And then she said, you know, I would consider myself an anarchist in that regard. So, I mean, I, I understand the, the cynicism. I think, historically speaking, any revolutionary change, any positive change that ever happened, it has happened because people who believed in reforms gave up on believing in reforms and gradualism because it stopped working and turned to other means. That might be mass strikes, that might be civil, civil disobedience. Sometimes it was ill thought out attempts at revolution. Sometimes it was successful attempts at revolution, but it was never continuing the same road of asking power to be slightly less uh, cuntish. You know, it's not, it's not that's not going to work. It's never worked. Um, and a, any student of history can tell you that. Um, so how you go forward is, or how we go forward, I think maybe is trying to create, we've said it before, maybe not in this podcast, trying to create a new world within the shell of the one that exists at the moment. And that's that's difficult. And it's not, and it requires a lot of self-sacrifice, of time, uh, of trying to make connections with people in a community or creating a new community um uh it means going on the picket line it means failing time and time again as uh as since we don't have the means of production at, at our disposal and we basically in ireland never had much of an industry anyway it's going to be difficult um and people i think maybe prefer parliament parliamentarism because it's it seems seductively like you, if you get into power uh through these elections you can change things quicker but I'm not convinced that that's actually, in fact, I'm determined in my belief that that's not how things work. Uh, Parliament holds back the work you need to do to change things. It, it's, it's, um, it's a red herring, whatever you want to call it. It doesn't, it's not real. You know? James, go for it. I feel that um, the reason that um, people are so drawn to parliamentary politics is it's the old case of, can someone else do it? It's as simple as that. Like, all you have to do is turn up, vote for the right person, and then all your problems get sorted out. That's what it's sold as, you know? Uh, and that's not the way it works. If you want to see a better world, you're going to have to get off your arse and do it yourself. Yeah, I think, like, um, a lot of problems just now, uh, especially, like, on the left, like, with weirdly with Leninists, <clears throat> seem to think that... Um, Marx predicted the material conditions themselves would 
drive change and they think that this means that they don't need to do anything because um, the material contradictions internal to capitalism will, will itself happen. But I think they keep on forgetting that there is like, you know, you need to make that work. You can't just sit back and like wait for the economy to crumble. You need to do something. Um, I think Alex said like building a new world in the shell of the old um, or like the, you know, some groups say things like working in and against capitalism. Um, but we can't forget, like, you know, it does take effort. I totally agree. Yeah. So basically, billionaire philanthropy is when some person, normally like a hyper weird person, um, accumulates an, an enormous amount of money and then they decide um, for whatever reason, which we're going to talk about, to start giving this money away. Um, most famously, um, Bill Gates um, set up the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation um, and have given away presumably billions of pounds um, with him and Warren Buffett uh, leading that. Um, accelerationists, oddly, really like Bill Gates. They think, um, you know, uh, Bill, I think Bill Gates in an interview fairly recently said the reason he was such a, a prick in business was to accumulate money so that he could give it away. Um, more cynical people than me uh, might say something like, you know, you wouldn't have accumulated this amount of money if you'd just been fair with people and redistributing your wealth after the fact is actually pretty bad because what you're doing is you're redistributing their wealth rather than uh, your own. So the slogan, there's no such thing as making a billion dollars, there's only stealing it, uh, really comes into play here. Um, the top 10 corporations in the world apparently uh, at the moment have more wealth than the bottom 180 con uh, countries in the world. And the three biggest corporations in America are wealthier than several European states combined. Um, if these things are true, and if wealth is a product of accumulation and exploitation of that labour, what is going on with billionaire philanthropy and why do anarchists um, dislike philanthropy but support solidarity? 
Um, would one of you like to take us off on that? I can start. Um, I mean, there's there's lots of <laughs> lots of points there. Why is it that wealth inequality has developed um, over the last 40, 50 years so that people have more wealth now than than the aristocracy of France in the 1780s? And that's that's a fact. Um, well, where do you begin? I, I think the destruction of the unions, the power of the unions, the movement of manufacturing to the east, um, cultural changes, uh, the rise of neoliberalism. We could be here all day. It's a long, a lot of things have happened over the last 50 years that has allowed billionaires to exist. And, and there's a whole debate as to whether they should. Um, one of the articles I read to prepare for this said that in the early 20th century, around the time of J.D. Rockefeller, there was huge anger at his philanthropy because it was like, well, how dare you? You made that money off ripping people off and taking money. And, and it was actually the president of the United States at the time, Taft, and the ex-president, uh, uh, Roosevelt, uh, the original Roosevelt, Teddy Roosevelt, who said that. So that was a pretty common belief that these, these people at the time, the age of the Gilded Age in American history, that they were, it was what they had done was evil. Basically, it was wrong. The accumulation of, 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 a, of, a, of a dragon's hoard worth of money. Um, so, I mean, that's how they got the money. Uh, how, what are they doing? Um, well, there's an element of PR to it that they want to be look like they're um, doing good for the world. There's an element of what of ideology. I think a lot of them believe are. are believe in the type of rich man's libertarianism, which is basically there should be no state to tax me and I should only give money to the causes I agree with, um, not presumably to people they consider to be lazy or to causes they don't think they're, are, 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 are right. Um, and there's also an element of tax dodging, um, in America anyway. I, I, I Will maybe can fill us in on what it works, how it is in the UK. When you give a donation... Um, some of that is taken off your tax bill. Again, how much of these people pay tax at all anyway? But it's taken off the bill. Um, and especially it's odd that in the States anyway, included in the list of charities are foundations uh, and in some cases uh, limited uh, companies that the that Zuckerberg, for example, has his own company, funnels his money into that. Even though it's his money and it's in this new, new, new company, he doesn't pay any tax on that. Uh, he, and he has complete control in that company. He can do whatever he likes with that money. So it's a lot of shuffling money around as well. So I think if, if we were to stick purely to, okay, the, the, their attempts at fund, you know, for example, Zuckerberg in, in, in San Francisco uh, has given two or three million to building affordable houses. Again, there's not even one, maybe certainly not two houses in, in, in um, San Francisco that actually cost two million. Uh, that's how expensive and how overpriced San Francisco has become. So I think it's it's a vanity thing, to be honest with you. At its best and its worst, it's just about hiding money from the taxman. Um, and it, what really we need to start thinking about is that if the state is even able now to curtail and control these people, uh, because they have become like a, a, essentially a, um, state entities, or at least so powerful that they might as well be a small, wealthy state, you know? Yeah, these people can definitely collapse your economy. Um, by like mass withdrawal of funds um, and like withdrawal of capital from the markets. Uh, James, you were going to say something? Yeah, so I think the one of the main reasons that billionaires get into philanthropy is to ensure that there's no real materialistic change to the world. So they can set it up in a way where it makes them look like they're doing something, but they're actually achieving next to nothing. Um, and 
<laughs> because they know if you know it's like the Batman uh like could fix crime in Gotham scenario where you know you could just you could basically solve half the crime problems by just putting the money into the economy but you'd rather just you know dress up in a suit and beat the crap out of people um billionaires know that if they actually started funding things that were worthwhile and doing it properly then that would erode their own safety net uh, of their ability to control populations and governments and um, things at a local level on top of that. Uh, where the irony is, though, is that they actually um, are the first to bemoan paying taxes, but their entire um, infrastructure is always heavily reliant on the, the state. Uh, Amazon is, you know, however profitable it is, but it also it got that way by using the postal services of the countries that it operates in. Definitely. Paying any more, you know, it's it's roads that it drives on is done by the state. The, um, you know, it's workers that are educated just enough to to read, but not enough to actually question what, you know, why they're working in the first place are all funded by the state. Uh, so it, it's basically a confidence trick where they just try and say, like, look, I've been giving away so many billions. You know, what do you want? Do you want me to be poor? I'm, I worked so hard to get to this this far. Uh, and, it, yeah, it keeps their, their grift going, effectively. I really like the point about um, that Amazon's business is parasitic on certain... Um, state-funded infrastructure like the roads and like, well, in the UK it was recently, uh, the postal service and things like this, um, which makes it all the more offensive when you think about the money that they're saving by not um, paying <laughs> paying um, the service charge back in the form of taxation. Yeah. So like, yeah. I drive to work, um, shout out to my car again, uh, screw you, Alex. Um, Karl Marx writes forever. Um <laughs> But, you know, I, I drive to work, I pay my road tax that, you know, reclaims the money it costs to keep the road up to date and keep it resurfaced and all that jam. Um, Amazon presumably do infinitely more damage to the roads than my kind of crappy car does um, with the amount of, like, the sheer volume of stuff coming out of their warehouses. And that's fine. Um, you know, like, they're entitled to use the roads, but they don't pay the tax that goes into, like, reclaiming the money back from it. Um Charity is a weird thing to start giving money to um, when you think about what it is they're doing. And obviously, charity helps people avoid paying tax. Most famously, and actually, do you know what? This really infuriates me. Gary Barlow is heralded as, as this weird national treasure. Um, he's a <laughs> for the Conservative Party. And was it 2012, 2011? He was outed as this massive tax dodger. And he was um, he was avoiding tax by uh, quote unquote funding um, various philanthropic projects in the Isle of Jersey, um, which at the time was apparently this um, arts hub for the world, um, entirely funded by you know tax avoiders. Um, I think he didn't pay the money that he avoided back, bizarrely. But he was like on um, the BBC a few nights ago telling people to like donate money to the NHS. And I'm like, dude, I wouldn't need to donate money to the NHS if you just paid your fucking taxes. Um, you know, like, as much as it's nice to see <laughs> to see this really old man walking around his garden various times, 
um, to raise like 12 million quid for the NHS. I would rather billionaires just paid their fucking tax. Um, it's, it's absolutely appalling. Um, the Batman point's a really interesting one. Um, I've had arguments with people about this before, where Batman is rolling around the streets essentially um, beating the crap out of people um, who are a threat to his own property. Um, so like Gotham City is essentially owned by Batman and his family. And it seems to be the case that he's just going around beating people up who threaten his power in some way. Um, but yeah, it's, it's just strange. If he just paid his taxes, maybe. Uh, I don't, I'm not accusing Batman of being a tax avoider. Um, but if Batman is a tax avoider, maybe he could fund a better police service instead of like it being a big vanity project for him. Uh, Alex? Um, I think there's um, something that probably... I mean, it's, it's, I, I struggle with it myself, whether um, to look at uh, what's happening and say, well, this is something that's new that's developing that uh, the state is being... Because the old argument was the state is basically becoming atrophied and private capital and private power, it basically in the hands of these billionaires and, and, and corporations, are taking their place. But what we've seen is actually the state can intervene, clearly. I mean, given what we the amount of bailouts and the amount of state intervention with the coronavirus. So maybe we kind of... The, the big thing will be over the next 10 years or 20 years that the, the basically the re return of the state as a, as a player, and again, that even saying that, that ignores what they did back in 2008, 2009, what they did again with the kind of stimulus, uh, the quantitative easing. So again, I, I do say that this is probably something that's been happening now for about 10 years as well. But do we think, here's kind of like an added question, does this make an argument for state being a buttress against the power of, 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 private, of private power? Because if we're, as anarchists, we're also socialists, saying we want to um, disestablish uh, the system, the capitalism and the state. Does the state have a role, do we think, um, and again, all that goes along with that, in protecting the majority of the population from private concentrations of power? People like uh, Bezos and, and maybe not Musk because he's fucking demented. Uh, but, you know, but Bezos, certainly, um, uh, or Zuckerberg. I mean, just, I can't think of many other levers of, or ways of controlling them other than the state. Yeah, I mean, like, it seems it seems weird because, like, the state definitely seemed to play a large part in um, allowing them to operate in the way that they do. And when the state are constructing a tax system, um, they know there are loopholes and they have the power to close the loopholes. Um, they just choose not to because they think, well, if we make our taxation system more robust, they'll just take their business elsewhere. It's the kind of the, the weird um, bank CEO paradox of, like, you don't want to, you don't want to um, tax these people too aggressively because they'll leave. But similarly, um, they are absolutely rinsing the state of resources and wealth. So what do you do? And it seems to be the case that the state are just um, constructing laws and union busting. Importantly, in the case of Amazon, um, as a as a way of like facilitating them. So as much as like the government and um, various state infrastructure use the language of um, we are the muzzle on the on the face of the aggressive capitalist dogs. Um, they, they're just not. Um, the laws that they construct and the the unions that they bust are all testament to that. Hmm. In my opinion, anyway. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> I guess if the end game is uh, like the state that you want to get to is you know, an anarchist federation or something, 
to get to that point, you would still need to use the lever of the state to even the playing field to start dismantling. I think if we were ever going to have an anarchist society, you would need to pretty much go through a Stalinist phase first to get to that point. That's a spicy hot take there. <laughs> um, Matt, so many spicy takes today. Um, I don't know how you would... Um, you know, what the state is good is at organising on on mass, which is difficult for um, anarchists to do with, you know, with the lack of hierarchies. So you can use, you know, if you think of the state as actually the dog, you know, you can use it as as an attack dog before you put it down. Are um, you suggesting some type of dictatorship of the proletariat? <laughs> yes, I am. Thank you very much. Okay. No, it's, just, it's good to know. Yeah. Um, um, but that's, you know, like, I don't... <clears throat> I don't see any other way around it at first because what will happen? We want what would actually happen is we show that they if you if say like in Ireland you try to get them to to cut the loopholes or to physically you know say make them pay the taxes that they should do, um, you know, and if the companies abscond, not that I actually think that a lot of them would. Um, but let's say that they did, you would show how weak governments actually are in, in looking after its own interests and the interest of its people, what it's meant to be doing. So <clears throat> if you can put pressure on a state to do things like that, it might not be effective, but it at least gives you ammunition to start using. Okay, so you think like doing this would basically draw the battle lines out more clearly? Yeah. Okay. Well, I suppose like the question that we should move on to really is when we think about who's funding what political projects, the CEOs of various um, massive corporations are funding think tanks and foundations that actually look for ways to destroy the state. Um, like they're normally these like ultra right wing, um, no taxation. Um, the only role of the state is to fund um, legal procedures to ensure that contracts are fulfilled. And those types of people um, are working with foundations and think tanks to destroy the state. Should we as anarchists be supporting this in principle um, or should we, we or should we be working with state socialists um, against it? I think think tanks should be banned. All of them. All of them. I should, I should, I should say, James, that um, Willie used to work for a think tank. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so like um, one of the think tanks uh, we used to do work with was one called Autonomy, and um, their primary obsession is with work. And um, like, yeah, they just basically, they're a bunch of nerds. It started up by a guy called Will Strong, um, who had a reading group. And someone said to him, why don't you make your reading group a think tank? And he said, what do I need to do to be a think tank? And then someone just shrugged their shoulders at him. And that was it. Like, you're a think, <laughs> if you, you're a think, it's one of these like really great um, self-identification things. If you think you're a think tank, you are a think tank. Um, but yeah, like he, he did a lot of work on like the four day week and universal basic income and things like that. Um, but yeah, why, why do you think we should ban think tanks? Go for it. First of all, the name's really stupid. It annoys me every time I hear it. Uh, <laughs> secondly, the, 
I've never heard anything good come out of a think tank. Like they're predominantly geared to producing like right wing quackery. Oh yeah, that's definitely true. And you know what you're talking about when it comes to ones that are doing like a four day week. Um, they'll always couch it in the wrong format, and so though instead of it being say like a four day week would be better for mental health, and it'd just be a nicer world to live in, they they'll get the chart out and be like, look, people are more productive, and that means your company will make more money if you're on a four day week. This is literally one hundred percent what we did. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, I don't I don't know if, how think tanks operate in Ireland but in the UK they're there to just like put pressure on gullible um, journalists and um, members of parliament I mean think tanks don't really exist over here in the same way they do in the UK and the US for lots of reasons there's there's like focus groups and stuff like that but it's not really the same level of um I don't know, extra parliamentary infrastructure over here for reasons that we can go into at another time. Um, in terms of should we as anarchists be encouraging of the destruction of the state, I think that's, that is the ultimate question because um, I was saying earlier about um, globalization may come to an end or, and, and, and the state may have a bigger role or our supranational entities like the European Union. That's a possibility, but there's also a possibility it doesn't do that, as James says, it goes the opposite direction, in which case, look, we'll have to rely very heavily on mutual aid, on local communities basically running their own affairs uh, because there really won't be much of a state left or any type of a net there for us in, in in a world of a Great Depression. You can a- very easily see what's going on at the moment once it's over, tailing into a global depression. And depressions happen because states institute vicious austerity. You know, the Nazis didn't come out of nowhere. They came, in, uh, they came out of what the SPD did, which was gutting everything. And the same for what's going on in, in, in with Trump. He didn't come out of nowhere. He's, he's the product of 40 or 50 years of of destroying manufacturing jobs, etc. So <clears throat> my point is, if that's likely to happen, it seems I think it's a good chance it might, what do we do with that? Uh, do we start saying, okay, well, we need to start running our communities or, or whatever, creating communities, you know, becoming militants in workplaces, all these different things, um, and say to ourselves, this is inevitable, but maybe we can direct it. A bit like a, 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 a keto, which is a martial art, in which you don't actually ever throw punches. Someone throws a punch at you, you use the energy in the, in the best way you can, basically, to achieve what you want. In the case of a keto, knocking someone out. In the case of anarchism, do we use that strain of libertarian, uh, basically anarcho-capitalism, uh, to give it maybe too grand term, and, so, and use that, um, because in the end, the state is also there to protect capital. Uh, capital is, is very, very dangerous. It's become more powerful, more um, uh, dangerous, but at the same time, the state has protected that and will, if needs be, become fascistic to protect it too. So I don't know, maybe there's, there's, I don't have an answer, but I think I don't see continuing on the way we are now as viable. Obviously, as James mentioned, the climate uh, crisis, we will be extinct unless we do this. Um, even the barest uh, um, concessions, which we were talking about in the first section, of just 7% less carbon a year is too much for them. So, I mean, at, at what point do we say, well, fuck it, you know, 
uh, we will have to do this ourselves. You know, I mean, that's the whole point of anarchism isn't isn't it anyway? Do do it yourself. So I mean, I think that it's coming to that point, and we'll soon know which way the, the state's going to go. Is it going to institute hideous austerity, or is it going to go the episode <laughs> I don't know, you know, but I wouldn't throw aside the idea of, the, of getting rid of the state completely because I don't know, maybe it's, it, there's a danger it could go fascistic, you know? Oh, so like one of the, I suppose like one of the themes that you're talking about is something that is mentioned quite a lot online, which is um, are anarcho-capitalists, wait a minute, yeah, are anarcho-capitalists really anarchists? Um, so like it seems to be the case that they think... <laughs> or they agree with some sort of social Darwinism um, and that they're all for hierarchies. They just don't want, like, you know, a state-based hierarchy. Um, whereas, like, anarchists normally try and resist hierarchy um, where possible um, and, like, you know, concentrations of power. Where in an ANCAP state, you would just have concentrations of power in accordance with whoever did the best business. Um, mm. Where Beth is normally narrowly defined in terms of growth or whatever. Um, what do you think? I suppose um, the question of, like, should we be siding with ANCAPs or with uh, state socialists? Um, yeah, but we all know who does the best business, and that's three kids in a trench coat. That's true. That's um, true. <laughs> yeah. But, um, no, ANCAPs are not anarchists. They're libertarians. Yeah, sure. Um, they went to the business factory. Pretty, business. Um, yeah, uh, Were you going to say something like well, I mean, a good example of, of how this kind of... Can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. Um, I was going to give a really ridiculous um, answer or example, pardon me, uh, of how kind of real uh, anarcho-capitalism or libertarianism really works. In America, um, the land of, of the free market, um, there are, is only one giant uh, company for uh, wrestling, professional wrestling, um, because there was once hundreds of them all over the country, you know? Um, and by the definition of libertarians, that was the way things should be, the, you know, local businesses, and they were all local based in different states and different parts of different states, doing what they were doing, and that was great. Uh, the problem with it is that someone comes along, in this case, and man if you if anyone remembers Vince McMahon and he basically gets an enormous amount of money mostly loans it really from banks and financial and sometimes from the mafia and bought up his competition and monopolized the whole thing um, and when everyone someone tries to challenge him he basically floods uh, their programs with, with ads for his program and, and steals all their talent so the point about libertarians is that they're not actually anarchists because they don't uh, uh, believe even in their own principles because you would meet libertarians and say, well, what about people who monopolize industry or industries? And they go, oh, well, that's fine, because they, they're just better at it. But that's not how it works. No. Um, I mean, most, most of these companies are subsidized in some way by the state anyway. I mean, it's so it, it I don't know, clearly they're not anarchists. Um, but whether, given our options going forward, we believe that uh, a world without a state um, is is worth achieving, um, I probably would side with James, to be honest with you, to some degree. I think the state, um, or at least something, whatever you want to call it, you know, dictatorship, proletariat, 
uh, basically is a, a, a ground, a stepping stone between uh, where we are now and there is, is, is probably more likely in the short term. I don't see people suddenly coming to the conclusion that having a, a anarchist society is, is going to be brilliant. I think you'll have to have that discussion, much like in the French Revolution, they had <laughs> some violent discussions between 1870, sorry, 1789 and, and eventually 1794 or 5, whenever the, um, you started to see the rise of Napoleon. But the point I'm trying to make is that I don't think this is, if you even have a revolution or a big change, that it's the end of, I think it, 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 there's enormous discussions and, and a big one will be whether we're, you know, we're better off just getting rid of the state as it exists, you know, and I don't have an answer for that really. But basically the returns are not anarchists, clearly. Very clearly. James. Um, yeah, I just, I actually think that you could use um, wrestlers as a good example of a a way that you can get people on site with our principles. Because now you see like basically like um, people that have been in WWE or WWF, whatever it's called, um, for like 20 years are now, you know, on um, like charity websites asking for money so they can like live out the last like toilet years with some dignity. Um, like basically if wrestlers were treated, <laughs> if cattle were treated the same way that wrestlers were, it would be um, like a national disgrace for lots of people. Um, so uh, you could use, you know, wrestlers as a, as a good example. I think I know that was that was kind of incoherent, but it's um, there's someone that have quite a lot of social capital i guess and even them you know someone like apart from your, your the few of them like hulk hogan which you know who's made enough money from tv and films um uh, most of them are uh, like living in shacks or um estates and uh James, in these James, horrible James, situations most of them are dead. Most of them are dead. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah, and the ones that aren't dead have got like serious um, back problems or neck problems, um, and without, they're just like dying without dignity. So that's it for this issue of the Enemy Podcast. Uh, we're going to leave you off with uh, a rendition of, well, I think the only rendition of uh, Concert Still Ruling the World by Jarvis Cocker, because we're in that type of mood. See you next week.
If you thought things had changed Friends, you better think again Bluntly put in the fewest of words Counts are still running the world Counts are still running the world Now the working classes are obsolete They are surplus to society's needs So let them all kill each other And get it made overseas That's the word, don't you know From the guys that's running the show Let's be perfectly clear, boys and girls Oh, cunts are still running the world Cunts are still running the world Right, but don't imagine that it's hurt. No, no. 